but the question is do we really want to simulate a human like do we have, do i have to simulate typos also or like the first thing you want to do is look at your data I mean, when you start with a problem, look at your data. Just don't throw something at it or like a huge language model or, or something or a big classifier. First, look at your data. Look what you have. Hello, folks. I'm Alex Petrus, and this is Applied AI Pod. Welcome to a conversation with Mark von Veil from Algolia, a site search and discovery API company with unique differentiators for all important aspects of search, text, and voice. We dig into unstructured data, improving errors and ambiguity, and the future of natural language processing. Tune in, there's so much to grab. Right, so we're here to talk about NLP, AI, speech technologies, all the buzzwordy words like deep neural networks, transformer models. I think I dropped enough buzzwords for now. Um, thank you, Mark, for joining us. Uh, the first question for you, simple yet complex to the point, how does NLP work? How does natural language processing work? Well, when you talk about natural language processing, usually you talk about uh, everything which is related with uh, treating with computer human language. So it's kind of an umbrella term. It used to be called stuff like computational linguistics or um, text processing, things like that. And it kind of changed like historically. Uh, we started with, like most of, um, let's say, computer-oriented machine learning-ish uh, things uh, by very uh, simple rule-based method, which were kind of at the core of everything developed around the, um, natural language processing, computational linguistic at the time, really trying to manually set the rule of linguistics in data. And uh, progressively from there, uh, historically, we, we had a shift, I think, in the... 80s, 90s, 80s started going through more like statistical and probabilistic methods, especially with the large, uh, let's say, a better um, access to large quantity of data, which progressively uh, went into machine learning. So we started seeing methods which actually were there uh, for a while, like, um, well, neural networks and, and others starting to be applied to these methods. And uh, in the 2010s, we started having this shift toward like deep neural networks. The idea is, um, at the beginning, as I said, we were going really rule-based on everything, from the extraction of features to like the decision process, which would give like uh, an output in the system. Uh, so input, you have text, then uh, manually people would uh, use rules to uh, extract features, and then this feature would be used by other rules to predict something. And then we managed to uh, uh, replace this prediction part by machine learning model and probabilistic model first, then machine learning models. And with the, the area of deep learning, we also end up with the system that can go end to end. So with just raw data, they are able to extract the features which are the most, uh, let's say, adapted to solve the problem itself. So we go end to end. That's kind of how the, the whole system uh, evolved. And this happened especially because of the, the huge, huge, um, access to large quantity of data we have right now with internet. So uh, it's something like machine learning and neural network are really good at is extracting patterns from these features. So that's how natural language processing really evolved and especially accelerated very recently. Let me drop a bit more spice to it. Um, 
how do transformer-based NLP models work? Because now, um, you know, everything sounds like a dream for NLP if you add transformer to it. <laughs> so how do, why, or how do transformer-based NLP models work? Why are they so hot right now? So something that we were using before transformer, like up to 2017, 18, uh, it was uh, something that actually started a bit before transformer was using what we call transfer learning. Oh, sorry, yeah, um, transfer learning, and especially learning contextual embeddings for words that started before transformer, like with uh, with TagLM, Elmo, ULM Fit, which are based on something called uh, recurrent neural networks. The idea of a recurrent neural networks was to uh, we are going to model a language by trying to predict which uh, what next word would happen from there. So we have a sentence and we have a model which is trained into predicting what is the next word. It's called a language model. And with this uh, type of representation, we realized that we could learn some kind of intermediate feature in our model based only on token or words. And out of this feature for every, uh, which is contextual because it's in the sentence, we could actually plug this into other tasks. So these features, this uh, vector representation, which is learned by this model, through so just making them read text, like a lot, a lot of text, they would, read, uh, read, sorry, they would learn this uh, contextual representation of token of words that we could use in another system, and this would boost their performances. That was the first, well, let's say, the burst of uh, transfer learning. At this time, it was working more or less well. We had a little bit of improvement with that. What transformers really changed is not the, the performances of the model. Actually, uh, when the paper came out, Attention is All You Need, which is the first of well, the paper describing transformer model, which was used for um, uh, machine translation. It wasn't performing that much better than a classical uh, encoder-decoder model with attention using RNNs. But it was much, much faster, like 100 to 1,000 times faster. It was, and because it's that much faster, you can use it for uh, much uh, more data. It, uh, it converged faster at training time. It goes much faster. It was due to this architecture, which is mainly uh, parallel, actually. Well, uh, the problem with RNN is it's, it's a sequential architecture. So you have a bottleneck at training. You have to process the data token by token and then get back through time with um, approvisions through, through time, which are like very sequential type of uh, algorithm. If you use a transformer model, you can show everything in. Uh, using the at, the at its core self-attention, which is going to make for each token, basically looking at all the token around it to determine their embedding and to determine their choice. So it's, um, well, this improvement with, which uh, pushed Transformer everywhere, actually. Uh, yeah, that's the, the highly parallel nature of it. Yeah, it's magic. This is the ma magic spice. I, I, I bet impacting time to, to, to result is uh, pretty useful to have when you deal with large data sets mm. or when you want to move faster with, uh, with the problem uh, scope you, you have. Um, all right, so we, we know now about NLP, how does it work, and we know the, the, what transformers do uh, when we uh, add them up. Let's try to dig a bit into the unstructured data perspective. Um, and then we're going to go to improving the error and ambiguity, and we're going to end with the future NLP. So for the unstructured data side of the story, because if we want an NLP system to work, we need loads of data. We have it, as you've mentioned. Uh, we have the internet. Well, uh, WWW offers us loads of internet. Um, 
Wikipedia, Reddit, everyone can build anything. Let's talk about the structure side of the story. So we have 80% of data available uh, to us that is available on the internet that is unstructured. Uh, and that's where the magic of NLP can work wonders because it takes this data uh, and under this unstructured data, there can be a lot of uh, untapped information that can help any business grow from, from its insights or from deriving those insights and using in their product or retraining their models on that data. How should we look at uh, this unstructured data and how should we try to take advantage of it more? You know, thinking in a general perspective. There's no such thing as unstructured data in text. Uh, like they said uh, in the in the book, um, I think it's AI for search. Uh, Trey Granger said it really well. Calling text unstructured is a bit like calling a song uh, playing on the radio arbitrary audio waves, which means uh, there is a structure in text. There, there's grammar, there's the relationship between words, etc. It's there, it's in the text. The thing is, how much can uh, a transformer can extract this kind of relationship? Well, the good news, it's much better than what we had before. So using transfer learning with, uh, let's say, a transformer who's been trained on lots of very general data, you can just specialize them on your on your data and see what you can extract from that. So if you have a transformer trained, let's say, on general data, and then you want to fine-tune it, then let's say, on application on legal data, for example, once you, are, you uh, inject it with more legal data, then you can actually train it on specific problem on your data set, on your niche data set. So there is a lot of things uh, you can extract from them. Um, very recently, also, there have been quite a few breakthroughs like on the way you can use them. There is something about transformer. The way you use them usually is you, you say you pre-train them, basically, by just making them read lots of text and trying to... Uh, uh, guess, you, you mask random word and try making them guess which word has been masked, masked or you ask them which is going to be then uh, if two sentences are actually uh, consecutive or not, this kind of, let's say, half supervised task. And then you can fine tune them on a manually annotated task. So that's kind of the way things were going on so far. But now we're, we're seeing more and more uh, what we call prompt based uh, learning or prompt based um, querying for. Um, a language model instead of asking the model, taking the model, fine tuning it on a task of classification, like typically adding a classification head on it or something like that. Uh, what on the structured data, what you do is you replace the task of classification by a task of language modeling. Instead of saying, okay, what's the sentiment of this sentence? Give me a one or give me a zero. Uh, you're going to say, okay, I, I, I'm writing this sentence. Oh, I really like this this restaurant, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And then you have a sentence at the end saying, like, overall, this was a very something experience. And you replace this something with good or bad, and you see which uh, word is actually the most likely. So there are, there are things you can tap inside this model, which has been they have been learning through like pattern of text that you can apply to different type of um, of problem. Uh, behind. And even right now, by using this kind of model, you can see that you will need uh, less and less uh, label data on that side by using this kind of very uh, simple trick. And by the way, if you want to know more about uh, prompt-based learning, there have been a very nice survey on that, which is called the Pre-Train, Prompt, and, and Predict a Systematic Survey of uh, Prompting Method in Neutral Language uh, Processing from the Carnegie Mellon University. It's quite interesting if you want to learn more about this, the topic. Yeah, so a note to our listener, the, the link mentioned by Mark can be found in the episode notes reference. 
So we'll make sure to to drop it there as well because it's use, really useful. I, I I think we should know more about this. Um, uh, let's uh, make it more complex a bit. If we add up machine learning, uh, how can we leverage more the impact on unstructured data? Well, I think as I was saying it a bit earlier, there have been this shift in um, natural language processing and mainly in machine learning and a lot of applications. Something you saw also in, in vision is the, the way that earlier what we'd be doing with data is it would have to go through some kind of pretreatment. You'd have to actually take the data, clean it a bit, try extracting the things which are important. You'd be identifying like, uh, let's say in your collection, you'd be thinking, okay, but uh, we have lots of stop words. Maybe I need to remove stop words because they don't add any, any information. Or I have to be careful because if I remove stop word, I might be removing negation and things like that. Or oh, what about punctuation and how do I segment sentences and things like that? So there will be a very strong uh, force on trying to, well, strong effort on trying to, uh, extract the, the most important feature of your data for your given task. Uh, something which we now have at least better with um, uh, deep learning and the machine learning is that a model will be able to extract by itself, oh, right, okay, this kind of word is not important for my, my task. This is important for my end task. This is not important. And also uh, with transfer learning, you can uh, transfer something which has been trained on a given task to a new task without, by specializing it, for example, on new data or on new fine-tuned data. You could have a model which has been trained for, let's say, finding semantic similarity between sentences, and you can maybe try transferring it toward a more niche, uh, ah, uh, toward a more niche domain. Let's say you have a very general sen sentence, uh, semantic sentence um, uh, similarity embeddings for general type of data and you want to then uh, specialize it on let's say engineering type of data then you can start with this model and fine tuning on your data and you, you will have better results than if you start from scratch so that's a, a big big improvement because suddenly you can apply a model with quite good results uh, on new on the new challenges so you even start seeing stuff like zero-shot learning or few-shot learning with uh, basically can take one model which is general enough and apply it to a different topic and even try finding uh, the right class for a new classification problem which start working okay, I would say. It's not great yet, but it's a start. Uh, this is a nice segue for, for my next perspective because um, this, uh, uh, you know, learning from one to another um, well, we know that there are four wide languages, most spread, um, mm -hmm. Arabic, Chinese, English, and Spanish. Uh, and they have the maximum amount, amount of resources available. Um, is that rich getting richer cycle, but how do we approach uh, the rest of the 90% of the languages that are low resource? Um, and could we do this transfer learning for them? Will it work? Will it work decently? And um, what's your experience for treating languages support in and outside work or your exposure so far? So the, the goal we have, at least at my uh, where I work at Algolia, is we'd like to bring search to everyone. And I mean really everyone, if we can. So we do care about languages a lot. 
Now, we have to say there are more than 7,000 languages in the world, at least which have been noted so far, and about mo a bit more than half of them have a writing system. And they are all coming from with different type of uh, challenges. Often, most of what you see out there is really made for English. English is a very particular case in languages in the sense that it has a very low morphology, like word inflect really, really poorly or really rarely. If you say uh, train, the word to train, then you add the S at the third person singular and an ED at the, at the past tense and you're done, basically. That's every inflection you have for this one. So, but a lot of languages are much, much richer into that. So uh, the way you have to, to go, well, not just that also, it has a very strong grammar and while, because it has a very weak morphology and you see a lot of languages which are much stronger um, morphology like uh, Russian or even Georgian, which because they have a rich morphology, you can alter the order of the word without losing the meaning. And you can even use this as a pragmatic, uh, in a pragmatic way. You can, you can use the, the word order to indicate more information on what is the topic of a sentence, what the important part of it, just by changing word order, which is a bit harder to do with, um, with English. So, so every language kind of brings their own challenges. And, um, well, the way it's done right now in machine learning usually is people tend to take one big model in and put a lot of data in many, many languages in it. So you'd have tons of, uh, of English language, a bit less, let's say, uh, Mandarin, in Mandarin, a bit less in Arabic and French and things like that. And then you have almost nothing for quite a lot of languages. Uh, one example of that was XLMR, which is which kind of supports more or less 100 languages. Problem with that is the way transformer work, or at least this one works. You start by using subword tokenization, which is you're going to try cutting word into meaningful morphemes. And across languages, if they are not related, like this meaningful morpheme, if they share the same writing system, of course, uh, it's going to be they might change meaning between languages. So you have one morpheme which is going to be shared with a lots of languages. It create kind of issues. Of course, the uh, the majority language would be better, all the other one would be kind of working-ish. It's not going to be necessarily great. There have been research on that, on making this kind of um, model much, much better, like uh, uh, notably trying to connect uh, for transfer learning, finding languages which are top typologically closer. Uh, I think, uh, once again, I'm going to maybe cite the work of the Carnegie Mellon University. Uh, they have been looking into something called, uh, what was it, maybe Lang2Vec? Something I'll, I'll type to Vec. I don't, I don't remember exactly, but basically they are trying to generate some kind of uh, vector representation between from a typology of, of language. So you'll be able to say, okay, I have this problem. Uh, I'm trying to, to create a language model or to apply a language model or like transfer learning to a given language, but I don't have that much data on this language, but I have a lot of data on other languages with larger models. So which model or which data can I use to, to help this, uh, this language lagging um, uh, data. So using this kind of uh, similarity between language, which is not always uh, epigenetic. So it's not always because the language is in the same family. You want to have other things like uh, shared vocabulary, shared writing system, maybe a shared typology like shared grammar and things like that. And you'd be able to find data from other languages from which you could extract something which would be useful to your new language. It's not exactly trivial, and it's very, very interesting. Could uh, these uh, commonalities between languages be exploited by be exploited by a universal language uh, model? 
like a cross-lingual transformer model or cross-lingual sentence, embed sentence embeddings? Uh, could this be an answer? Yeah, that definitely could be something because you, you want to be able to... Uh, to well, ideally, you would be you want to be able to do that, but again, you don't want to mix languages which are typologically too too far. Uh, in one paper I read very recently, they were trying to analyze okay, how well uh, can we transfer data on um, one language to another, and they, the, um, the the answer from that is like okay, if they are typologically very close, let's say French and Spanish or Italian and, and Romanian, maybe. It's, you can be able to extract something from that. But if they are very, very far typologically, I don't know, French and Japanese, for example, then there's really nothing that, that adds up. You really can't, can't help a language so with something which is completely we go different. To the language history, we have the groups of languages, Slavic, mm -hmm. Latin, Germanic, and so on and so forth. So we just group them by those groups, the ones that we know. And say in a group, we could potentially use a cross lingual model. That's one way of, that's one similarity you could say, but there, there's a bit more than that. Often it's not just like the fact that they're part of the same family, but often there's lots of, um, let's say, uh, language exchange due to, uh, uh, due to um, uh, uh, similar borders or like, ex like uh, how do you say that? Uh, economical exchanges and lots of cultural exchanges between languages. Then you'd be thinking, from that, you'd also be able to extract uh, bold words. There's lots of, uh, let's say, Arabic words in Persian, and because and from that, and also they use also the, the Arabic alphabet now, so you'd be able to maybe transfer a bit of Arabic to the Persian uh, uh, language because you'd have maybe maybe stronger you'd have anchors across languages by sharing vocabulary. That would be an example. But definitely, the first thing to look at is, um, as you say, epigenetic. Um, Similarity, so really, uh, are they part of the same language family? The closer they are, and the closer they are physically, and the more exchange you see, then the more you'd have, um, the more likely you'd have, uh, uh, let's say, material to transfer. Oh, so so interesting. Yeah, definitely. We need to read more on this. I I think uh, this could be a, a trend for twenty twenty two. It's already quite a big trend. There's lots of research on that. Uh, if you look at uh, the work of, Seb of Sebastian Ruder, for example, mm -hmm. which is uh, working at Google Research, I think, is uh, he did quite a lot on uh, on the topic and worked a lot on um, multilingual and cross-lingual embeddings. It's very, it's quite fascinating to follow what he's writing, uh, working on. And again, also the Carnegie Mellon University, the in the Graham New Big Slack. Uh, lab also they are doing a lot on that and uh, they if you don't know much about the topic it's it's quite fascinating yeah. studying languages and seeing the, the wide variety of languages across the world the way things are written differently the expectation on different languages things we think like okay every language should be doing that well some language don't so it's it's a really fascinating topic definitely for sure um, makes me wonder word embeddings and their mission to capture multi-dimensions of data. Uh, so we use our word embeddings represented as vectors. That's very common in, in NLP. Uh, but do they offer enough dimension uh, to cover some, some common reasoning needs? Um, or do you have any idea on how we could further try to solve the common reasoning uh, needs for for understanding? That's a very good question. Um, 
look at what uh, word meaning and transformer are learning and especially from what they are learning so what you give to a transformer nowadays is just a large quantity of text large quantity of text on the internet and in this large quantity of text then we want, we expect them to be able to do things like common sense reasoning and if you ask me can they do common sense reasoning my answer would be probably not not from that um, something i talked about a bit earlier is like when we have a conversation we have a presupposition together we have a common ground we know that the sun is going to rise every day we hope and uh, we know that uh, pain is bad uh, pleasure is good um, well we have this kind of presupposition killing some someone is typically something i want to avoid so you'd be thinking about that but the the model is actually starting from text text and pure text and there is really only uh, it's retrained really only on form and there's lots of things we don't write when we talk about uh, when when you put in text. Lots of things we have as a presupposition we never actually write. You don't see that many stories. We talk about the number of eyes of a person or the average number of toes of someone. But we know them because they are part of our presupposition, but we never really talk about that. And um, you never. If I tell you a story like, um, oh, I went out with my friend yesterday, and now uh, and now James has a headache. You'd be thinking, okay, so he went out with his friends. Uh, he, someone of the night had a headache, so probably they have been drinking, and James is one of the friends. That's a lot of presupposition you're making because you know this kind of sentence. That's something also that is kind of still, I'd say, elusive to a language model on that. So do word embedding, like, can word embedding do common sense reasoning only based on, um, on form? I don't think so. I really don't think so. There have been research on making it better, notably uh, by adding uh, knowledge graph inside that. I think if you follow uh, Yejin Choi, who is an associate professor at the University of Washington, uh, she actually developed quite brilliantly on that. Uh, she did a, a very recent, um, you, you know, the Twim AI podcast? Yeah. She was invited uh, really recently to it and yeah. she did a very brilliant um, talk about that. Um, and she actually developed a few research paper with our group and students on that, not only one on something called Comet, which is a, a knowledge graph they developed, which is only made of natural sentences, by the way. And using this knowledge graph, which is based on, on sentences of things, which are basically our presupposition that we barely write in practice, uh, they managed to beat the performances of really large models like GPT-3 uh, on several tasks by using a model which is a 430 times much, uh, 430 times smaller. So it's quite impressive. And maybe there is a way of encoding this kind of presupposition in, in the model, but using pure text, uh, at least pure text on the way it's scrapped from the internet, uh, I don't think it's necessarily the way. Okay, so we're gonna find the link in the episode notes. Um, if we think at uh, improving the error in ambiguity in, in the training data set or for a model, for a model in general, what techniques uh, would be good to follow? Well, I'd say for like beginner in the field and even advanced people sometimes, what you want to do is like there's, there are a few simple steps that some people often, uh, let's say, overlook. So the first thing you want to do is look at your data. I mean, when you start with a problem, look at your data. Just don't throw something at it or like a huge language model or, or something or a big classifier. First, look at your data. Look what you have. Uh, then think about your data representation. Like, 
what can you extract from your data? How can, could you make your models work a bit, a bit easier, especially if you don't have much, uh, like a large amount of data? That could really help. And then uh, make sure you also measure, um, well, that the measure you're going to use on your problem, make sure they reflect uh, your business needs. Because sometimes you're going to use a measurement on the model, it's accuracy or something. It might not be the best measure you want for the given problem you have. So ask yourself, okay, what am I trying to measure? How, does it, how is it reflected in my data? What is the, the end goal of the model? Keep that one in mind. Uh, of course, also start with a very simple baseline, something very, very simple, uh, which to see if you can actually get um, good performance enough really fast. Because often on a given problem, your idea is, okay, I want to have an one score or an accuracy at 80%, and I'm already happy with that because that's enough for what I want to do. If you start with a very simple problem, a very simple model, which gives you a result which are good enough, perfect, you can even stop there. But if you don't, uh, you can use the result of the first approach to reflect on your data and on the potential issue you're gonna, you're gonna find. It's okay, why is this model not good enough? Exactly where is it wrong? Then you look at your um, true, uh, your false positive, true negatives, you look at them and you say, okay, why was it wrong there? What's missing? What, uh, what kind of, uh, of uh, improvement can I expect from a, a smarter model, something much, uh, much more complex? And if you realize that, okay, a smarter model wouldn't be able to, to solve this problem, then you kind of see where you're blocked. And from there, you can start, you can iterate. You can try improving the model, maybe take a look at the data. What do you miss there? Maybe I don't have enough data. Maybe uh, uh, my data representation is not working really well. Maybe there is no correlation or very little correlation between my uh, my measure and my business uh, uh, my business need. So yeah, basically. Okay. Yeah, there's a need to to be uh, linked better, aligned better, to aligning metrics, model metrics to business metrics. Mm. Harder to be done than said, actually, because it's really hard oh, to, definitely. to link those. Um, right. So moving on, do you think GPTs, because we've mentioned that, uh, you know, how transformers change the NLP space, how GPT-3 changed the NLP space, how knowledge graphs are improving um, the space as well. Do you think GPTs are leading uh, the NLP effort in, a wrong, uh, in the field in a wrong direction? I'm going to answer something like uh, everybody says, answer this question with uh, maybe or yes and no, <laughs> so, somehow. For me, their research actually helped us see the limits and limitation of our current approach. I mean, when BERT went out uh, in 2019, I think, uh, everybody was like, wow, it's, it's awesome. It can do so many things and started digging into that. And it took time to realize what were the problem with this approach. Of course, it's much better than what we had before, but there are biases. Uh, there is um, well, low, low bias learning. There is, um, let's say, sometimes it would pick some random uh, random words or token as hint that uh, it should always give a class. Um, well, let's say there is strong bias. Sorry. And uh, what we see with GPT is getting better and better. But I feel like as the model grow, grows bigger and as the data, the input data also are bigger and bigger, we kind of see some kind of logarithmic um, improvement. We have to make the model that much bigger. We have to have that much more data to see a half a percent improvement on a given task. So we're kind of, for me, we're kind of hitting uh, like there's, um, the ceiling of this kind of approach. And their work is actually quite valuable on that. You can see, okay, 
once we have a lot more data and a, and a much larger model, how much better is, gonna, is it going to get? So it's kind of, it's still pretty useful for us, for sure. And um, somehow a lot of people are coming now in the field thinking, oh, well, how can I really contribute? I don't have like uh, open AI computing power. I'm not Google. How can I do anything about that? And uh, I feel like it kind of pushed people to be more inventive, to really start looking at different things. Okay, I cannot do what they are doing, and uh, but I still want to, to have an improvement. So maybe I can look at something completely different. How can I reach the same kind of uh, of uh, of improvement with that? That's kind of what pushed like the research on uh, how to add um, uh, the GPTJ, the the open source one. It's still a really big model, actually. <laughs> so it's not really, it's more like compet- making it accessible for everyone than making it different or making it smarter. It's more like uh, using knowledge graph or these kind of things mm. to limit the amount of data and the size of the model to have something a bit more, um, uh, let's say, as good on your task, but needing a lot less resources for that. Efficient, because uh, if you think about green AI, the, the, the concept of... Uh, uh, aligning red AI to green AI is this concept of not focusing only on accuracy and large data sets, but also focusing on efficiency as well and mm. trying to be much more sustainable about the entire approach over a task, over the size of a model data set. And... Oh, definitely. And you also see um, something... Well, there is an effort on making the architecture a bit smarter or better, but if you look at what's happened, was happening since 2017 on the architecture of the transformer, there is little to no improvement based on on changing architecture or like uh, activation function or, or things like that. Lots of people have published on that. And I think very recently, uh, Google Research also published a, a review on all these improvements which have been published and they have the conclusion that most of them don't bring anything. And uh, maybe people are starting to look at what seems to be working in changing the way we are training models, for example, seems to be working pretty well also. But I really feel like if we look at transformers themselves and the architecture, we are kind of hitting some kind of ceiling. And even if GPT's efforts are kind of pushing the ceiling as much as they can, it's also show a limit. And like you said, it's a limit in terms of resources and computation. If everybody was training their own GPT-3, it would be catastrophic, ecologically <laughs> speaking. Imagine that. Let me push the ceiling a bit higher for you too. Is deep learning the end of AI? <laughs> I know this is funny. I ask this uh, to many well, it's, people. It's hard to tell. Like this <laughs> yes or no question. <laughs> it's hard to tell. Uh, as I said a little earlier, what you see right now, especially with the architecture of the transformer, is like over the past two years, two, three years, there have been almost no change into the architecture. It's kind of almost the same. Nothing really changed in terms of uh, performances regarding the little tweaks they put here and there. I think a few, a few smart things like uh, the switch transformer that Google did, which is much, much larger, but uh, kind of switch or decide which part of the, um, of the neural network are going to be used for a given task, which is actually a really nice improvement. But uh, I also feel like, yeah, at least transformer-wise, we're kind of hitting some kind of ceiling and we'll need a different architecture. Maybe... If we go back to this thing of starting uh, by handmade feature and automatic and kind of automatizing that part, maybe the solution would be to have um, a model able to generate its own architecture. Like there have been research on uh, genetic algorithm for genetic programming to generate uh, automatically. A, uh, how do you call that thing? It's a, a neural search. 
So really searching for architecture, which are the most fitted for a given task or like a given set of optimization. And this burns also a lot of resources. I think Google Mina, which has a, a chatbot, which has been done in early 2020s, uh, was using that and it's it really <laughs> used a huge amount of money and uh, and show lots of a very big uh, carbon footprint. But uh, maybe going this way would be the, the next step for deep learning. That could be useful, but I, yeah, we always have to balance the cost of our actions. Mm. And, um, you know, back in the days when uh, everyone was mining Bitcoins, the cost of mining a Bitcoin was actually double what you were getting out of the Bitcoin. So, yeah, we have to be worried how we use technology and its impact. How, what do we get out of using AI and that training and that technology? Uh, of course, you have to think long-term as well. Something that might cost you now um, considerably higher may be a long-term investment. So you never know. Uh, yeah, it's a two-way two sword. sword. Uh, what are some good NLP metrics uh, to watch? I'm asking this because the NLP space has a few metrics, a few metrics that are being used by everyone. Uh, but uh, there are no, say... Uh, setting stone NLP metrics uh, focused uh, focus for everyone. Uh, I saw Facebook that uh, they are trying to impose some NLP metric concepts. Uh, you know, they have they build their Dynascore, uh, the the concept of fairness and robustness. Um, what do you think that would be a good set of NLP metrics to watch as a company? For a model, it really depends on your end, uh, let's say end task on that. The thing is, uh, I looked really shortly at the Dynascore. It seems to be a step in the right direction. What you usually do when you want to compare to a language model or to a transfer learning model, uh, you use um, a benchmark of different uh, tasks, like uh, glue or super glue. And uh, you try measuring like how well this model can be uh, used for all these tasks and you see more or less improvement. That's what happened after, after birth and everything that followed. People were like, coming with uh, iteration which should improve the model and you'd see that it would be better in some tasks but not as good in some other tasks, uh, these kind of things. Like the problem we have, uh, especially with NLP metrics, is uh, to make them still automatically measurable is quite uh, a challenge. Specifically, if you come like, you can come with very simple um, tasks like uh, classification or natural language inference. Basically, you're trying to say for natural language inference, you're trying to say there are two sentences. Are they a contradiction? Are they uh, uh, entailment? Or are, do have, they have nothing to do uh, with each other? Since it's a simple classification problem, it's very easy to, to automatic, um, automatically run the test. Uh, it's the same for when you do a QCM or then the model has several potential choices. Uh, Q and extractive Q&A also, you, you, you will extract like part of the uh, sentence in the context which answer your, your, um, your question. So that can be done automatically. But when you want to do, um, when you want to do a, go a bit further in and you want to really have a model which is able to do something very complex like machine translation, summarization, or even like, let's call it reasoning or conversation, then it becomes really hard to measure because the set of potential answers like the model uh, can give you in natural language, it's kind of it's kind of huge. Like for a translation, typically you can have quite a few sentences which would be acceptable translation. So you have to give them all. 
And then the way we measure that is uh, by using some kind of n-graph-based measure like blue or rouge for uh, summarization. And again, summarization is really hard because you can summarize a text in so many different ways. It's really hard. And that's kind of hard task. It's a, it's a really real way of saying like, uh, can the model really generate something which is meaningful or uh, which kind of look like common sense? Typically, conversation, story, storytelling also, like letting a model give you a story. How do you evaluate the story automatically? Well, you have to read it. It's, it's really challenging. And I think it's definitely a very uh, important uh, step because what you see in academia and research usually is like just people publishing to beat the benchmark and beat the state of the art in the benchmark. Instead of, you don't see that many research into improving the benchmark making it harder and also automatically measuring like a harder task, which I think until we're able to do something like that, it's going to be challenging um, to really push for like more maybe general intelligence type of models. Yeah, I've seen indeed this pattern of publications actually just trying to beat the benchmark and it's... indeed feels like it should be the other way around. It's really the course of the for the state of the art, but to be, uh, uh, it's kind of this vicious cycle of publication. Well, you need funding to uh, to do research, to to get funding, you need to publish. To publish, you need to be state of the art, or nobody want to publish you. Yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's not a virtuous cycle. It's just a, it's a cycle. vicious cycle. Yeah, a vicious cycle. Um, so. That means it will actually be harder to get from transactional queries, input-output, to actual conversational queries that where we just have natural conversations. Because currently there's a transactional query. Um, there's an input, there are some rules, and there's an output uh, by using the rules and what it got indexed and... Um, but can we like actually go conversational query and a conversation to continue asynchronously of what you say, you said something previously, we're going to use that, but you return in two hours. And by the way, as you mentioned the story with a friend, you know, he got a headache. Could we get there like to do even reasoning at the level or have some sort of a conversation and not the, transaction conversation hmm. so when you, you talk about uh, transaction or queries talking more about search i guess like yeah or q a yeah so the first question to ask is what do you want to solve with search because what are you looking for typically in q a or in e-commerce like you have exact search um, like what am i really looking for you can let's say i'm a customer on a website and i'm typing typing some kind of search so what am i really looking for am i just looking for an item on the website Am I looking for like a, a, an event, a sale or something? Or am I just navigating? So instead of saying, I want this type of shoes, like a sneakers blue at this size, I'm looking for something precise. But if I'm just looking at a, let's say a sneakers this size, then I'm maybe starting to browse on, on the shoes. So it's kind of intent classification. You want to know first what the user is looking for. Uh, and then for, by, for each case, you want to provide a different type of solution, like a conversation. Once intent is found, the system can maybe query the user for like missing information. You're on Google Map and you're like, all right, I want to eat a pizza today. Where can I get a nice pizza? Except you didn't realize you blocked your location. So the system is going to be, okay, looking for pizza. Oh, yeah, okay, but I don't know where you are. So it's going to ask you, well, okay, great, but where are you? <laughs> 
So this kind of thing. So you can have a conversation on that, like based on what you are looking for, once the intent is kind of found, the system can be, well, what do I need to answer this question? And try can try uh, mapping these missing values to uh, using some kind of conversation with you. I'm thinking uh, that we can only unlock this if we use signals from other channels, like a multimodal approach, where you'd be using other technologies to, to augment the information you have. Like, okay, you'd be on a website, you'd be searching for shoes, as you mentioned, but... Uh, hey, to actually help you find the right shoes, maybe I need to use some computer vision um, algorithms to actually scan your feet, I don't know. And maybe I need access to your camera. And it's like the maps stuff. I need your location. Okay, I will need to, to have access to your camera. So I think this maturity or this evolution towards conversation need to, needs to involve picking up signals from other sources as well and mixing everything together. Oh, definitely. You want to gather many sources and also maybe some kind of knowledge base mm -hmm. on your data. Technically, the data you're trying to path, they're kind of your knowledge base. So can you extract the knowledge from that? You also want to be able to know your user. Like, okay, I'm looking for shoes. And, but then you know your user. Okay, I know this guy. He's a size mm -hmm. 43, for example. It's something. Or, and also he lives in this place or... So I'm going to find a place like a, a shop, which is not too far, or maybe a shop which can, uh, which can deliver at this address, this kind of things. You know, so their preferences, okay, I'm looking for shoes, but I know you really like red. Or I'm, I'm looking for a jacket, but uh, I noticed you, you, you just bought a trouser and this jacket fits really well with those kind of trousers, oh, this kind of things. That. Yeah. that would be kind of scary, but quite awesome. Also yeah, yeah, no, no, I see the functionality. That would be amazing. Hard, hard. I, I, I think it will be hard because you will have, the system will have to memorize quite a mm. lot of preferences. And that puts the question of computation again, and of storage and of processing. Mm. So definitely loads of things involved. Definitely. And as you say, in, in search, we kind of go from this, uh, well, historically, we have this uh, kind of view of index, retrieves and rank model based. Um, uh, that's why uh, n, n rank model uh, type of uh, search. Traditional search is really based on inverted uh, index. So you can find relevant article, but it also keeps a lot of burden on the user. Like uh, typically if you use traditional search, like keyword based and you look, okay, I would like to, uh, well, let's say 10 years ago, you are looking for a question like, okay, how old is the Dalai Lama or something like that? Then you'd have to, to type in, uh, in Google search Dalai Lama and then you'd have article and you have to click yourself on the, on the, um, on the link and try looking for like his date of birth and then do the math yourself or like he's he's smoking good for you so you'd have to to check okay uh, smoking articles and smoking research article and you'd have to kind of gather the data and try to uh, to answer the question yourself it would be just gathering data and then you'd be able to resonate on that uh, also it doesn't capture like the semantic behind tokens so there's lots of uh, morphological and grammatical information which this kind of keyword based search don't really get Nowadays, you see more neural search, uh, which is either like based on cross or by encoder. So basically, you can either um, encode the query with your uh, every single one of your uh, text or like a possible search, and it will uh, give you some kind of similarity measure. It's pretty slow, unfortunately, so it has to work with some kind of keyword-based uh, search in the background to give you most likely result, and only on this result to a bit uh, go a bit deeper. You have also by encoders, which are based on uh, uh, also semantic similarity, but 
can be faster using a few um, approximation on that. And these kind of embeddings are able to extract maybe more contextually based um, answer. You have also Q&A model, which are also able to extract more or less well, with say, answer from text, but it will be extractive most of the time. And again, since these models are kind of neural based, they are pretty slow. And if you have millions or billions of data behind, you'd have to combine them with some kind of uh, indexing approach, like keyword-based indexing approach to go much, much faster. So that's where kind of where we are right now. Now there is a trend growing also, trying to be a purely model-based um, information retrieval. There's a very nice article about that from uh, uh, Google Research, which is called, uh, I can find it, it's uh, Rethinking Search, uh, Making Expert Out of Dilettant Common Sense Reasoning. So what they try to push is for the future, what they really want to, uh, uh, to push is having one model which encode your own uh, data set. Basically, it can directly generate answers when you're typing, uh, you're typing something, it's going to say, okay, it's looking for uh, a question. That's what kind of what you start seeing right now uh, with Google. Like you type an answer and often you have several potential answers already ready for you. Like how old is Dalai Lama? It will give you a number or, or give you directly what you're looking for without passing by all this gathering data um, sense. It can also, um, it would be, let's say, one model for all potential tasks, Q&A, query related, to be able to say, okay, oh, they're looking for this kind of shoes. So here are the kind of shoes you're looking for directly, instead of just providing you with um, uh, potential uh, articles and you have to actually browse through them to be able to do stuff like summarization also, maybe machine translation out of the box as you're typing stuff. But so far, like this kind of model, which are generative, like the model we can use to start this kind of research would be stuff like, like you've seen GPT-3 or, or T5, T5, which is an encoder decoder. Basically, you give it, uh, instead of giving you embeddings at the end or classification or something, it will generate text as an answer. But the problem with this kind of model is they are prone to hallucination. Sometimes you give them text as an input and they're going to start babbling about something that has nothing to do with what you're, you're asking. So it's, it can be problematic. Uh, uh, of course, um, they make mistakes. Like they might give you the wrong answer, and the problem with that is they cannot. You cannot explain their answer. They're just going to generate text, and they are really black box. So if you ask the model, so why do you answer that? Where, where are the documents uh, related to that? Like, uh, okay, I ask you, uh, what, how old is the Dalai Lama? You give me a number, but where can, what's, what's the authority behind? Where did you find this number? So that's the kind of thing this kind of model can do yet. So if we can. Ideally, have one model that encode all the, um, the data in the index, and this model is queryable, which it should be able to give you answers out of the box, immediately answering your questions, but it should also be able to explain the answer, to say, okay, I'm taking that, and these are the references, just to make sure they are not just generating random data based on statistics. I think DARPA, the Department of Defense, American Defense, was working on providing to, to gen the general public a machine learning explainable AI model that you'd be able to use so you get this explanation somehow. Uh, I think they, their delivery was supposed to be in 2022 or something like this, so they are close to their delivery date. Uh, definitely going to keep an eye on them as well. Maybe it's going to be useful. That would be huge. Yeah. <laughs> It, it hasn't been done before, so it's definitely something huge. Uh, one last question, and we wrap up. Um, this is a funny one again. But because we've talked about and we are seeing, watching everything unfolding, we see Transformer, we see GPT-3, we see 
products using GPT-3 that we think are humans but are not. Um, I've been using such products to build myself articles or parts of articles because I didn't have enough time. So I, for example, I published an article where 40% of my content was uh, being built with uh, such a tool, GPT-3, because uh, I needed more uh, meat to it and it felt... uh, it felt good. It felt like it built the right content on top of what I already had. Uh, is the Turing test in this context still relevant for NLP or has it become obsolete? Because we can generate text, we can generate conversation, virtual ones, where you cannot tell that it's not a human. Well, yeah, but the question is what the point of the Turing test? What are we trying to measure with that? Yeah, true. That's the question we need to ask for the benchmarking system, glue and the rest. And I think mm-hmm. this is the correct approach. Yeah. Well, we're yeah, we're trying to to tell if we're talking or interacting with the machine or not. At least uh, this was the initial one. Okay. Well, the idea of the Turing test was kind of to show that uh, it's to to measure if something is intelligent. That was the the point of the test. So the idea is to um, have people chat with some kind of either an AI or someone, and the person would be having a normal conversation by text. Of course, it was way too hard. So we'd have some limitation. The text should be very small, short, or you'd have very short conversation, like no more than four or five uh, questions on one given topic, these kind of things. But at the time, what we were trying to see is can the machine uh, looks like a human? The idea is the, the judge should, uh, after the conversation, should be able to tell, okay, I was talking with someone or I was talking with a machine. So basically, they are trying to see, uh, can a machine simulate a human? So that's kind of what the, the way we're seeing the, the Turing test is, uh, is applied. But the question is, do we really want to simulate a human? Like... Do, we have, do I have to simulate typos also or like... Uh... Yeah, it simulates everything. Yeah, I've tested it. It yeah, simulates so... even, you know, some jargon that, yeah, it's not widely used. I mean, scary okay, but... to some extent. But the question is, is it really what we're looking for? We want a, a model which makes mistakes and use jargon and thing. I don't think the Turing test is adapted to what we are looking for. Like the... the um, the benchmark like glue or super glue are trying to kind of tease like is uh, the model transferable is it kind of developing something like common sense that's something more interesting to check i don't care if the the model is not speaking like a human if it doesn't make if it makes mistakes if it has opinion and biases what i want to see is a model capable of of building its own thought a model capable of taking its own decision a model keeping of capable of having common sense that's something mm-hmm. more interesting to see uh, that if I can tell it's a model and not a human, it's, it doesn't matter to me. What I want to see is a model developing more of a general intelligence. If it's able to tell me stories which are um, uh, enjoyable, if it's able to have a conversation and tell me, uh, having an analysis, a complex analysis of a problem and tell me why it made a decision, then I'm, I'm very happy to work with this model and I'm thinking, like, okay, that we have something of value, something of value for everybody like for, for humanity, for the world. But if it's just something capable of having a conversation that looks like I'm talking with my neighbor, it's an... what do I do with that? Yeah, just taking the world further. So 
not only mimicking what the world can do right now, but building our tomorrow, building something we haven't been exposed to before, like innovating. Yeah, definitely. Okay. Thank you so much, Mark, for your contribution. I really love that conversation. I think uh, the audience has so much to unpack from, from it. And I think the episode notes will uh, come in very useful. Um, thank you once again for your time. Thank you for your contribution. And um, yeah, I think it's fascinating to, to be active in the space of NLP currently, to deal with languages, the complexity that comes with it, and the challenges that are present in the NLP space. Definitely. These are exciting time. And thank you so much for inviting me. It was a very interesting conversation. It was very uh, enjoyable on my side. That's all, folks. Thank you for listening to this episode on speech technology, NLP, and transformer models with Mark from Algolia. Make sure you subscribe or rate the podcast if you like what you listen. Until the next time, take care, all.